Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're on week two of our study called Anoint Thine Eyes. It's a study on vision, knowing where to go, knowing what we're going to do next. Where does God want you specifically to go next? So last week we kind of covered uh, an intro to 2 Peter chapter 1 because Peter gives just an awesome concoction of what the Bible calls eye salve. For back in the day when people couldn't see, and they had this medicine, this concoction where they were able to kind of rub it on their eyes and supposedly it would help them see. I'm actually going to cover that in about well two months' time when we get to where in the Bible that phrase is found at. Uh, you'll learn something interesting about history about eye salve. But uh, for now... Uh, the ISAV that we have, it's the Word of God. It's, it's allowing Christ to get a hold of us, to reach out to Him and see, God, what is it you have for me? Where is it you want me to go? What is the next step after high school? What's the next step for after high school, after college? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? Sometimes, you know, we try to have that figured out by the time you're done with junior high so that the time you get into the senior high, you're like, all right, I know who I am, but... What should I be doing? That's kind of the philosophy of ministry we have from the junior high to the senior high. But sometimes, you know, the development happens later in life. Sometimes people get saved in the senior high, even though they went to the junior high all those years. And so you're still kind of discovering, who am I in Christ? And that's okay. But that's where, when it comes to vision, when it comes to seeing where we need to go, Second Peter has this great, great conclusion as to how to uh, know what it is you're supposed to do and know where you're supposed to go. So on your outline, we're going to start here with week two. And tonight, t- tonight, today's message is called Virtue Favors the Bold. Kind of a little play on the phrase, fortune favors the bold. Uh, I was going to title it that, but then I looked it up, and fortune is actually the Greek god Fortuna. And I didn't want to present a false gospel here or present a false god. So I decided to call it Virtue Favors the Bold. And you'll see why as we go through that. But follow along with me on your introduction. So last week we began our study with an eye-opening intro, pun definitely intended, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we were reminded of our call as disciples to be what? Anybody remember? I heard it. Say it louder. Servants. Servants. We're reminded of our call as disciples to be servants who are required to know what is expected of us and to perform the doing of it. That is an awesome phrase that's found in 2 Corinthians 8. Check that out later. But if we are going to be neither barren nor unfruitful in our service unto the Lord, and if we want to have vision to see it through, we must take heed to the call to add to our faith those spiritual attributes found in verses 5-7. through Today we're going to look at the first quality. And as a reminder, I put this verse up, I think we kind of ended with it last week. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people what? People perish. But he that keepeth the law, he that does what God asks him to do, which implies that you know what God is asking you to do, you know what God is telling you through his word. He that keepeth the law, what? Happy is he. So hey, if you've ever struggled with, man, what am I doing? What am I supposed to be doing? Or if maybe you're the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe you feel like, man, I really feel like I have no purpose. I don't really know why I'm here. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. 
some way or another, it has something to do with our willingness to add to our faith these attributes we're about to read in 2 Peter chapter 1, or what we're about to study, rather. We need to add these principles to our faith so that we can have clarity and a vision of what we're supposed to be doing. So, point number one, we're going to look at the first quality. We are to add to our faith virtue. Does anybody want to open us up in a word of prayer? Anyone? Sam. Dearly Father, Lord, just thank you for this morning. Just for everybody that got to come out. I pray for those who didn't make it, Lord, that they can just listen to the podcast after and still get blessed from this message. Lord, I pray you give Corey the words to speak and also Pastor Tom. Lord, I pray that you just bless them all as we're going to go after church to go evangelize, that you give us open doors um, and that the lost might be saved. I pray also in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So point number one, add to your faith virtue. That's your blank. Now, I told you guys, I think uh, either last Wednesday or a couple weeks ago, I am a big definitions guy. I love it. Uh, and so really with this whole series, all of the attributes we're going to be looking at, there's really two main sources I go to for definitions. The first one, it's a guy by the name of James Strong. Anybody know who he, who he is or what he did? Strong's Concordance. Strong's Concordance. And so I don't, we don't have time to do it today, but I think maybe two or three Sundays from now, I'll show you guys. Uh, there's a cool app, and if you guys don't have it on your phone, definitely get it on your phone. But it's called Blue Letter Bible. Anybody have that, that you guys use that in your regular reading or studying? Man, download it and just start playing around with it to see all the cool tools that are on there. There's something on there called a concordance, and a concordance not only gives you definitions of what words mean, but it also shows you, hey, where else is this word also found in the Bible? And how does God use this word? Because when you see how God has used it, where He's placed it in the Bible, you start seeing things and you start understanding something a lot deeper about that word that you wouldn't be able to get just from looking at a simple definition. And so that's really, really cool. Strong's basically looks at the original Hebrew and the Greek languages from the manuscripts that, again, are trusted manuscripts that we get our Bible from. And he based his definitions all on how those words are used in the Hebrew and the Greek. So it's a really, really cool tool. The other thing, it's Noah Webster and his dictionary. Now, what is, what, why is that significant? What is significant about that? I couldn't decide which one I wanted to use, so I combined them. What's significant about Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, Carson? First English dictionary, right? I believe it was, yes. Challenging me on my history. There were, there were a couple minor dictionaries, but this was... But his was different. the first, like, complete, yeah. yes, I believe so. Don't fact check me on that. I yes, that is, I think that is, for the sake of argument, we're going to say yes, it was. And if it's wrong, I'll come back later, correct it. But I think you are right on that. What else is significant about it, Sammy? Definitions are derived from the Bible. Yes. Just about every single word in his dictionary, if not all of his words in dictionary, he got the definitions based upon how the Bible uses them. Or if there are words that aren't found in the Bible, he looked at the etymology of the words and what other words are used to make this English word. And if they had their roots in the Bible... He would use it to go along with that and to define it. So those are two key resources. And I'm angry. Does anybody use the free online version of Webster's 1828 Dictionary? Have you guys looked at it this past week? I'm irate. Wait, did they change the app on your iPhone? The app is three bucks. Yeah, I saw there's an app that's three bucks. It might be worth buying because, man, is that tool 
impeccable. But yeah, well, no, the free one's offline. You can't find it on the website anymore. No, it's on the app store. Yeah, maybe so. Not a free one. Well, Ethan. You can just go to a different. Seriously, if you, if it for sure is, I the one I looked at, I didn't see it. Okay, but anyways, it will be worth the three bucks if you need to purchase it. But man, a great tool, a great resource, and he'll even, and sometimes with his definitions, he'll put the verse that goes along with that word. So with all of these character traits, because I mean, does anybody here, off the top of your head, do you know without looking at your study sheet, what virtue means? Don't look at your study sheet, Dustin. <laughs> Did you look at your study sheet? No. Okay. That's one aspect of it. But there's a lot of these words where we might be able to at least use it. <laughs> is it one of the blanks? <laughs> it, we might. It, it is on the study sheet. Valor, excellence. Well, that's the next one. Oh. There's a lot of these words that we might be able to efficiently use it in a sentence. But it's always good just to be reminded of, oh, I knew that word, I use that word regularly, but what does it actually mean? How does the Bible define it? And what does it actually say? So letter A, Strong's definition in the Bible, this was kind of cool. The word virtue, it literally means manliness. Manliness, it's how it's used in Scripture. It means valor. Excellence. And you might think of that as an, oh, excellent, oh, awesome, absurd, California. I know. No, I think people still talk like that. California. Whatever. Anybody watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? There you go. You guys, some of you guys know. Excellence doesn't just mean like, oh, that's excellent. It means to excel. Not create a spreadsheet. It means to do well in something to achieve something, to win, to gain something. And it means praise. And this whole idea of, of manliness, it actually comes from this verse that's here. I know this is a big one that Stephen likes. I'm sure some of you have seen it. Where Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, you wouldn't write that verse down if you want. It says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith. And then he has this interesting phrase, quit you like men, be strong. That whole phrase, quit you like men, it's essentially how Strong's uses the word virtue. And this is what he means when he says manliness. What it's essentially saying here is like, especially if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, was this a model church? No. No. In fact, the entire first letter was all just a scathing rebuke at these guys because they were doing everything wrong. And as a side note, you might want to pay attention to some of the doctrines that maybe a lot of other churches gather from that book. Because there's actually quite a few of them. If you actually look what Paul is saying there, he's rebuking them for this doctrine that they're purporting and that they're doing. We'll cover that later in church history on Wednesday nights. But it's a scathing rebuke. And really what he's saying here, I love it. There were so many people who were like, man, I am consistent and I am persistent on, on doing this thing. Or I'm consistent and persistent on doing this sin. And I, you know what? I know the Bible says we shouldn't sue a brother in Christ and we shouldn't take them to court. But you know what? They wronged me. And I've been wrong, and so I'm going to get my justice, and I'm going to keep forward on this path. And Paul is basically telling them, no, no, no. Quit you. Quit you. Your path, your way, what you want to do, your idea of being right. Quit everything that's you like a man. Be willing to die to self, in other words. 
put your feelings, your thoughts, your motives on the altar and sacrifice and say, God, you know what? I'm really upset at this person because of how they wronged me. Or I really want to keep doing this. I know the Bible says that I shouldn't be doing this, but I really want to keep doing it. You know what? I'm going to quit my way of thinking. I'm going to quit my lifestyle and I'm going to surrender to you. That's really the true definition of manliness right there. That's what it means to be a man. And for those of you who are like, well, I'm a woman. I love this phrase because really what he's saying here is man up. But in our vernacular, what do we say? We say, man, man up, cowboy up, cowgirl up. Do the right thing is what he's saying. That's what virtue is. To do the right thing. That's how he made us to be. That's how Strong's uses this. Letter B, Webster's definition, though. See, Brandon? <laughs> it is on there. Webster defines it, and again, very similar vernacular, very similar to the way that Strong's does. He says it's strength from straining, stretching, or extending. What does that sound like? Working out. Working out. Strength training. In order for your muscles to get stronger, you need to break them down. That's what weight training does. That's why you're so sore afterwards when you start lifting. If you're like me and Ethan, where we bench press 400 pounds. <laughs> Good. Good. Just seeing if you guys are all awake. Just making sure you guys are all awake. <laughs> I was actually hoping to get in the choke on his own donut. <laughs> Strength from straining, stretching, extending. You need to break your muscles down in order for them to build back up stronger. There is a spiritual application of that. Sometimes you need to be put through the ringer and you need to be put under some extreme stress in order for your faith to grow stronger. That's what virtue is. It also means bravery. And it also means moral goodness. And really, if we wanted to summarize virtue from both of these definitions, it means doing the right thing. Doing what you know is right. Making the right choice. Doing the right thing. If you wanted to write that down, take notes of that. And I have here in parenthesis, see Webster's definition number three for this two-sided coin of moral goodness. And I have it up here on the screen for you guys. Check this out. And if you can't see it in the back, don't worry, I'm going to read it. But he says moral goodness. The practice of moral duties and the abstaining from vice. So virtue is not only doing the right thing, it's not doing what you shouldn't be doing. Or a conformity of life and conversation in the moral law. In this sense, virtue may be, and in many instances, must be distinguished from religion. Now, a quick point on that word religion. When we think of religion, what do we think about? Catholicism. What else? Buddhism works. Buddhism works. It's basically, it's anything. And even there's even Christian churches where they're very, very religious. It's all works-based. It goes back to what we looked at a couple Sundays ago with Cain and Abel. The very first mention of the word time in all of the Bible, it's where Cain is offering up the works of his own hands and thinking it's going to be acceptable in God's sight. That's religion. That was the birth of religion. Really. In this sense, though, and, and we say that today because that's what a vast majority of the people in the world think when they hear religion, is doing good to earn favor with God. But you realize that the Bible actually says the word religion in a pure sense 
the book of James talks about it. Religion, biblically speaking, it is our walk and our relationship with Christ. It's just one of those words we don't really use anymore because so many churches and so many other denominations or religions have used it, no pun intended, to mean a works-based salvation. So that's why we kind of stray from him. But understand when he says it here, he is talking about our walk with Christ. So pay attention to what he just mentioned. There is a way for you to do that which is right, but it's absent from your walk with God. That's what he's saying here. And then he goes on to say, what are the defining characteristics that separate that? Pay close attention to these next words. He said, the practice of moral duties merely from motives of convenience or from compulsion, in other words, you're compelled or you have to do something, or from regard to reputation is virtue as distinct or separate from religion or your walk with Christ. But the practice of duties from sincere love to God and His laws is virtue and religion. In this sense, it is true. So did everybody see what he was distinguishing there? It is possible for somebody to do the right thing, to do that which is good, morally good, but have it be for a completely different motive. And in that sense, it's not really virtuous. So a couple examples. We may know that, man, it is virtuous to not look at pornography. We may know that it is not virtuous to gossip and to backbite and to talk about other people. We may know that. But what is your motive and what is your circumstance? People may not look at porn or gossip because, man, you know what? It's just not convenient for me at that time to do so. Or, man, if I talk about this person behind their back, my reputation might be at stake. So I don't want to do those things because of this motive or because of this circumstance I find myself in. Oh, however, though, if my circumstance changes, man, I see that group of people over there, they're talking about so-and-so. Boy, do I have something juicy to add to that. Oh, but so-and-so's there, and if I mention something, they're going to rat me out. They're probably going to rebuke me for gossiping. That's not really gossip. If I mention it and I tell them that I just really want us to pray for that person, well, then I'll be fine. But I still don't trust that person. Oh, they just left. Well, now my circumstance has changed. It is now convenient for me to go share what I really want to share. But I was virtuous. Those are the things that we should abstain from. Yes, it is not virtuous to be looking at junk that you shouldn't be looking at on your phones, on your computers, on the TV, or even things that you put in your ears and listen to. It is virtuous not to do those things. But do you consider yourself virtuous just because maybe at the time it's just not convenient? Oh, but then mom and dad are gone. My siblings are gone. Now it suddenly becomes convenient for me. That's not true virtue. Even though the other times you might have abstained from those vices, you might have abstained from those sins, what was the motive 
And what was the circumstance? That's the difference of virtue. So we might be thinking, oh, virtue, that's the first one. You know, if I'm looking at this list in 2 Peter 1, yeah, down the road, those are the ones that, oh, you know, I definitely know I'm not here yet. We might think, oh, the first one, only immature Christians, they're not virtuous. When we look at this definition and we look at how the Bible uses it and defines it, it's this definition that should cause every single one of us to be like, the things that I do, what's my motive? And is it based upon the circumstances I find myself in? Am I only doing that which is good because it helps my reputation? Am I only doing the things that are good because I have to? You know, we looked at two examples of things that we shouldn't do, but what about things that we should be doing? Helping out and serving in an area in ministry here, VBS, going on a missions trip, kids ministry, going to the mall to witness afterwards. Am I only doing it because I want my reputation, I want others to think, oh, man, look at them, they're a spiritual leader. Reputation. Or am I doing it because of compulsion? I have to do it. I have to read my Bible today. I have to go serve. Oh, so tired. I really wanted to stay for main service and just sit. I don't want to be up dealing with those kids, especially if you have my son. I get it. What's your motive and what's your circumstance? If that is what you base your virtue on, is it really virtue? And if it's not really virtue, is it added to your faith? And if it's not added to your faith, you're going to end up visionless. And this is huge. Where we see this happen the biggest, I think, as an example, and I've talked about it before, it's when people go off to college. When you see kids graduate from the senior high and go off into college, you see a lot of them, they're away from their parents. In some cases, they're away from their church family. and In some cases, they're not. Some cases, they're within driving distance of the church when they go off to college. But man, they're not living under their parents' household anymore. You're able to get away with a lot more things that you weren't able to get away with when you were in high school. It wasn't convenient for them to get into the things they get involved in in college when they were under their parents' household. And one of the oh, one of the most fearful verses, and you might want to write it down, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it's verse 12. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth. Because as I give that analogy right now, many of you in here might be thinking, that won't be me. I'm strong in my faith and I'm not going to let that happen to me when I go off to college. That verse says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he what? Fall. That goes for every single one of us. That's how Webster uses it. So here's the thing. If your virtue is based upon your circumstance, it ain't virtue. If your circumstances change, but your decision upon that sin or upon that act of service, it maintains the same, then it's virtue. It shouldn't be dependent upon your circumstances in life because circumstances change with the wind. You guys are in Luke chapter 9, right? Here's an example of how this kind of works out. Look at verse 57. These 57 to 62 are just core passages. When I think about what a biblical definition of discipleship is, it's these passages here. Not a going through a book and filling in blanks. 
No, because what is the definition of a disciple as we saw last week? It is a follower of God. Someone who follows God. Look what this guy says in verse 57 to 58. Can I get a reader for that? Carson. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds, have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You know what I love about this passage? I don't doubt for a second that the guy who said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. I don't doubt for a second that he meant it. I believe wholeheartedly he meant this. And it's not that necessarily that Christ was calling him out and saying, no, you don't, dude. What usually tends to happen in our lives is that we'll bring something to God. We're like, Lord, this is what I want to do. I, I want to go into full-time ministry. And the Bible even says, he that desireth the office of a bishop desireth a good thing. It's a good thing. But usually whenever we come to God with something like that, that kind of a, Lord, I'm ready to go further, what he usually does is bring any weakness that will hinder that in our life, he brings it to the surface. And that's what I think he's doing here when he says this to this guy. He's like, hey man, you want to follow me? Are you absolutely sure you want to go into ministry? Man, these foxes, they have holes. Birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. You want to follow me? You're going to have to give up a lot of your creature comforts. It's not always going to be restful. It's not always going to be peaceful. It's not always going to be a life of ease. You sure you want to follow me still? You might have a lot of sleepless nights crying over people who left you. You might have a lot of nights where you're praying for people and it's not going to be the most restful sound bit of sleep that you got the night before. You're going to have people turn their backs and walk out on you. You're going to have people stab you in the back. And it might just cost you your very life. Are you sure you want to follow me? It's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. Understand, here's a principle of it. How does it tie in? Following Christ isn't always going to be convenient. It's not always going to be convenient to your schedule. Sometimes service is sacrificial, like giving somebody a ride to a youth event. It may be way out of your way. Sometimes service is sacrificial. It's not convenient for you to drive all that way to drop somebody off. Or even going out of your way to talk with somebody, just to introduce yourself to them. Even if it's someone, maybe it's a first-time guest, or maybe it's someone that's been coming for a while, but you've never had the chance to actually go up and introduce yourself to them. Say, hey, get to know them. That's not always convenient. We don't like that sometimes. It's, I mean, even me right now, I even kind of don't like that. I used to be, as soon as I was out of high school, I was an usher and I was a door greeter all the time. And I got to know everyone's names that were in this church. And now it's like, man, I think that person's been coming here for like three years, but I don't know their name. So I'll go up and I was like, hey, how you doing? What's your name, Brad? Hi, Brad. And in my head, I'm like, Brad, Brad, Brad. His name is Brad. His name is Brad, 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 Brad. His name is Brad. Don't say anything. Oh, no. Uh, wait, uh, what'd you say? No, I was listening. No, I was listening. I just, I totally wasn't trying to memorize your name in my head. I was totally following with everything you were just telling me there, uh, Phil. And like, I get that kind of nervousness. Like me, like I have no problem talking with you guys, but there's even like people that have been coming here for a while. I'm like, I really need to get out of my comfort zone and go say hi to them and introduce myself to them and really try hard not to just memorize what their name is so that I actually forget what they're saying. It's not how you build relationships. So I'm right there with you. It's not always convenient, 
but it's what duty calls for. Turn over to John chapter 6. Here's another example of how this works, how this definition of moral goodness, of being virtuous works. So as we're turning there, who can tell me what's the context of John chapter 6? And Ethan and Sam can't say because it's part of the outreach study we're doing starting this Thursday. So make sure you're in their place and make sure you bring a guest. Dustin. Was it the miracles? It was one of the miracles. It was the feeding of the 5,000. Where Jesus, again, using such a beautiful word picture, he feeds 5,000 with bread and he uses it to present to others how he himself is the bread of life, where if you take of him, where you receive him as your savior, you will have sustenance forevermore and you'll never have need of anything. That's what he's using here in this passage. Look at verse 60. Can I get a reader? We're gonna, I need a reader for verses 60 to 62. Dustin. Then I need a reader for 63 and 64. Ethan, and I need someone for 65. Sam. Go ahead, Dustin. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is an, this is an hard saying. Who can hear it? All right, stop right there real quick, Dustin. So the context, what he was saying, he's like, you know, everybody who comes to me, everyone who really wants to receive me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's what he said. And so the disciples... And note, it says disciples there. Not regular attenders, not guests and visitors, the disciples. They're like, uh, Lord, what do you mean by this? Are you telling us all to become cannibals? And so now he's starting to explain to them, no, that's not what I meant. Follow along, pay attention, because again, there are some churches that get this whole idea of communion completely out of whack because of the verse like 59, and he's explaining what he really means here. Continue, Dustin, verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. Now 63 is key to explaining this, Ethan. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Now see, what he says in verse 63 is key. The words that I speak unto you, they're spiritual. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I'm speaking to you, that is what it is. It's the spiritual application. I'm talking about you coming to me. If I'm the bread of life, when you take my words, and you don't just be a hearer only, but you actually receive them. You actually digest them. Book of Jeremiah says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. The word of God needs to become a part of your life. It needs to flow through you. You need to do what it is that you read. Because remember, he that keepeth the law does it. Happy is he. But where there is no vision, people what? That's what he's saying here. He's like, no, no, no. I'm not saying you physically eat me and physically drink my blood. No, it's spiritual. I'm talking about you doing what I tell you to do. Verse 63, the disciples here needed to be convinced that their flesh profits nothing. But you know the problem with man? You guys see this when you witness, and for those of you that are going today, you're going to see it even more clearly. Some people just can't wrap their minds around the fact 
that my salvation is not somehow connected with something that I do. They just can't reconcile that. Mankind, because of his lost state, is so programmed to think, I need to do something in order to get saved. I need to do something in order to earn favor with God. It has to be my own works. It has to be the works of my hands. It is so hard for people to die to self and to trust Christ. The flesh profits nothing. And that very thought, when they realize, wait a second, this isn't about me for reputation's sake doing something so that God looks at me with favor. When they finally realize that, look what their response was in verse 66 of John 6. John 666, from that time, many of his first-time guests, many of his regular attenders, no, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. When they realized that they didn't have to do it, they didn't have to follow God, they didn't have to do anything to get saved, they didn't, do, they didn't have to do anything, compulsion, to maintain their salvation. And when they realized there was no brownie points in it for them, reputation, they bailed. And we see that happen all the time in this church and even in this ministry. We have to take heed. So, that was just a couple examples. Now let's look at point number two, the duality, this, this twofold warring nature Let's see it go further. How else does the Bible use it to define virtue? How else does God use it to talk about doing things out of a right, pure heart attitude, regardless of the circumstance you find yourself in? And let's look at people who maybe do things right, virtue, but it's out of a wrong heart motive. It's based upon their circumstances in life because he takes it further. Letter A. When you tap into the virtue of Jesus, you know what it does? It brings about acting power. Mark 5.30 is that passage where that, that little girl who was, who was uh, uh, oh, what happened to her? She had the, the issue of the blood. She had this physical infirmity, this physical illness that she couldn't do anything about within her own. But she sees Jesus and she knows that there's something different about him. She knows that, man, if I tap into his power... Maybe some of his power will transfer over to me. And she had that faith just to reach out and to touch his garment. And what happened? She was healed immediately of her infirmity, of her illness. Beautiful picture of sin when we reach out to him and trust him that he's able to. Luke chapter 6, verse 19 says, And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went, what? Virtue out of him and healed them all. That word virtue shows up in Mark 5 with the girl. Jesus says when he perceived that virtue came out of him. That word here is talking about power. Power comes out of him and strengthens those who reach out to him. That's the key. It's power to cleanse and heal from sin. It's the power to overcome obstacles that are outside of our control. And in 2 Timothy 1.7... You know, those are major things, sins, things that are outside of our control, big things. But that power of Christ that strengthens you to be virtuous, it descends even from the seemingly minuscule things such as fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, God hath not given us the, the spirit of fear, but of power, virtue, love, and of a sound mind. 
But here's the key, though. What did these people have to do? They had to seek him out. They had to reach out to him. You know what that requires? Being close to Jesus. Being close to Christ. Getting near him. You know, I think about this. If you want to write down James 4, verses 2 and 3. Powerful verses on prayer, and we had mentioned a couple weeks ago. But if there's, is there something in your life that you're like, I need answers to? There's something in your life that you want there's, there's a, that requires an answer from God. You know what the Bible says there? If you don't have that answer, maybe it's because you're not asking Him for it. You're not reaching out to Him. You're not drawing nigh or close to Him so that He can draw near to you and you can reach out and say, Lord, I need an answer on this. Please help me. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. Or... In the very next verse, maybe the reason you don't have the answer to that question, whatever it is that you're looking for, is because you ask amiss. You have the wrong motive behind it. I remember the biggest thing for us, and I'm sure, well, maybe, I don't know. I'm sure it kind of has some similarities today. It's like, oh, Lord, why doesn't she like me? Lord, why won't he just ask me out? Why won't he ask me to win her formal, the prom, or this, that, or the other? And we'd ask amiss because... It was for our own selfish desires and motives. Prayers like that, sometimes God answers it, but it's usually in the form of a, not now, or let me redirect your focus and your vision onto something else. And that's okay. But man, we have to reach out. We have to ask Him. We need to be close in order to tap into that virtue so that He can then impart that strength unto us. That's when we do it with a pure heart motive, with a pure heart attitude. But, next bullet point, sub-point rather, those who don't draw near, those who choose not to reach out and get close with Christ, they fail to know Him. I'm not saying you're not saved, but you're missing out on a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I mean. God has given us all things for life and godliness, and we just saw that last week. But I love this verse, Philippians 3.10. Paul is saying that I may know Him. And he follows it up with what knowing God is all about. So if you have this idea of what knowing God is in your head, and maybe I should have asked that before showing the verse, here's what the Bible says knowing God is. The power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Because you can't have a resurrection if there wasn't first a death. Being made conformable unto His death. Do you want to know God? It requires death. It requires sufferings. It requires going through trials and tribulations. But man, you know what? Death's not convenient for me. Death's not good for my reputation. I have my own desires. I have my own things I want to do. I don't want to put them up there on the altar to God and say, Lord, if you don't want me to do this, if you don't want me to go to college, if you don't want me to have this job, if you don't want me dating that person, you know what? Death's not good for me now. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing and then tag your name along with it. Because after all, it's good. There's nothing wrong with going to college. There's nothing wrong with dating this other Christian. Right? 
Yeah, no, of course not. So I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah, see, death's not convenient. Death's not good for our reputation. So oftentimes, we decide to just bail out, and then we walk through life visionless. Because we're not adding virtue or faith. No. If we really want to reach out to God and tap into the virtue and the power that He gives, like we just saw, we need to be willing to put our desires, our motives, and our wants and needs on the altar and say, God, I'm laying this down. I don't want to, but I'm trusting you. I don't want to give up on this, but I'm trusting you. And I know you're going to resurrect something. If it's not these feelings, if it's not these desires that I have regarding my future, if you don't resurrect that, I trust you'll resurrect another path that has something to do with that. It's just not what I thought it was going to be. Does that make sense? That's what we need to do. But if we're only doing it out of convenience or compulsion, compulsion, like have to, I have to get up early in the morning and read my Bible. If that's how you view morning devotions, you know what's going to happen. You're only going to get so far and then you're just going to get exhausted by it and you're going to, oh man, I missed the last two, three days. You know, what's the point? And then the next thing you know, two, three days turns into two to three months where you're not in your Bible at all. So here's the thing, and I definitely wanted to mention this to you guys because I struggled with that too in high school, getting up early. I think there's a, it's a clear principle as far as it's definitely wise. I mean, David said it over and over again in the Psalms to get up early. The Israelites, when they went out of Egypt and into the wilderness, they were commanded to get their manna, the bread, the Word of God, early in the morning. Why? Because you don't want to go throughout your school day, you don't want to go throughout your day at all, not having heard from Christ first thing. It's definitely unwise. David, when he fell into sin with Bathsheba, is because he stayed in bed until noon, when he should have been out on the battlefield as kings were to do. Check out 2 Samuel 11, that's what it says. Kings are supposed to go out to battle, and he stayed in bed all day long, and look what happened. So there's definitely a principle about being in your, in your Bible, in the Word of God, every single morning before you start your day. However, that being said, if it's between, oh man, bummer, I didn't get up early this morning and oh, it's going to be a rough day and I'm probably going to get in my flesh and the world is going to kick my teeth in. If it's between you doing your Bible reading at night versus, well, I didn't get into it this morning, I might as well just not do my Bible reading at all. By all means, do your Bible reading at night. Be with Him. I used to get so psyched out into thinking, man, you know what? I missed out on this morning. I'm, what's the point of me even getting in my Bible at all when I was in high school? And you know what you'll find? Yeah, maybe, maybe you do just struggle getting up in the morning. Maybe you struggle with like reading your Bible and then just falling asleep midway through. I get it. Then make up for it. Read less in the morning. Make up for it at night before you go to bed. Or if you're just not reading at all, do it at night. Do you think God is going to be more pleased with the fact that you're actually in the Word of God versus not being in the Word of God at all, regardless of what time of day it is? Because that's the thing. I think God's going to honor that heart versus one who is in their Bible every single morning, but it's because they have to. It's a compulsion. I have to do this. So, may not be convenient. And again, you guys who are in sports or in music, you guys understand this. It takes commitment 
for those two things, right? Sports, musical, anything. You need to be committed. You need to get in the game. You need to put forth some time and some effort. It's the same thing with this. All right, letter B. To fight in this war of adding to your faith, one must be a mighty man of valor towards others or a mighty woman of valor towards others. Well, how does that look like? Joshua 1.14 on the screen. We just looked at this a couple months ago. They're about ready to go into the promised land. And God is saying, your wives, your little ones, your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan as before they crossed over to fight the giants. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed all the mighty men of or virtue. They're brave. They're strong. They're doing the right thing. But what does he say there at the end? And help them. Help them. Turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And this letter B might be where we end today and we'll pick up next week. It was funny when I taught this to your parents on Wednesday nights not too long ago. It was an eight-week class. I think this is definitely going to take us up to camp. But that's okay. There's definitely a lot to look at here and there's a lot of principles to be applied. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. They didn't just go over the other side of Jordan just to take some land. No. The key point of it was they were fighting for the man and the woman next to them. You talk to many soldiers when they're like, man, why do you do what you do? Why are you able to go into warfare? Why are you able to go into battle? You know what you'll hear them say? It's because of the man next to me. It's because of the person I'm fighting along with. I'm going to make sure that that person gets home to see their family. Because I know they're doing the same thing for me. That's what it should be like here for us. The things that we're struggling with, the things that others are struggling with in here, the Bible says that we are to be, uh, to have that kind of compassion upon them and to share in their burdens. Maybe we're not going through the same thing, but maybe we can be that friend in need to help them to face those giants that are in their life. First Chronicles chapter 12, look at verse 21. This is talking about mighty uh, soldiers, uh, and they helped David against the band of the rovers. We'll see what they did here in a little bit. Those band of rovers, they captured the wives and the children of Israel. For they, the ones who helped David, were all mighty men of what? And were captains of the host. For at that time, day by day, there came to David to what? Help him. Until it was a great host like the host of God. You know why God doesn't just send an army of angels to help you and I on a daily basis? Because we have each other. That was the entire point of the church body. To edify, to strengthen, to encourage, to be helpers for us all to get the job done that we need to get done. That's what I talk about when I talk about us not being a youth group, but a youth ministry. We are ministering to the needs of others. We're reaching out to the needs of others. When was the last time you reached out to somebody within this group and just asked, how are you doing? No, 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 no. How are you doing, though? Man, I'll tell you what, it was a rough week for me. Be honest. Be open about how your struggles were. Maybe it'll cause them to be a little bit more open with how they're struggling, too. 
help them. Because you know what? This point in David's life, he was not in a good spot. He was alone. He was outnumbered. He had no one. This is the man after God's own heart, mind you. And he needed help. He needed people to come alongside of him and to strengthen him. He needed someone else who was stronger, full of valor and bravery to help him fight the fight. And if we're going to add virtue to our faith, we're going to be virtue and strong and mighty men and women of valor. We need to look out for those in need who don't even know that they're supposed to be adding to their faith. This is where discipleship comes in. Couple months, we're going to be doing an activity with the junior hires. We're going to have some eighth graders come in here. They're going to need your guys' help. They're going to need you who are strong and strengthened and have been through a lot more to reach out to them and, like, man, freshman year, that was a make or break year for me. It's going to be rough for you. Let me share some of my experiences with you. That's what they're going to need. So to fight in this war of adding your faith, one must be a mighty man or woman of valor towards others. It involves helping. But if your motives for helping are selfish, your fight won't last long. We're here in 1 Chronicles. Turn over to chapter 5. So these two passages we have here, 1 Chronicles 5, 1 Samuel 30, they are parallel passages to the ones we just looked at. So this one here has a direct connection to what we just saw in Joshua 1.14. You know who God's speaking to here in Joshua 1 about going over to the other side, Jordan? The two and a half tribes. Ephraim, half tribe of Manasseh, and Reuben. Reuben? I think it's Ephraim. Don't quote me on that. It's definitely a half tribe of Manasseh and Reuben. I want to say Ephraim. But anyways, they are the ones who they went back to the other side, crossing Jordan, to go camp out on the other side of Jordan, which I have my own theory about that. I know it kind of differs from what Pastor Thomas. I'll talk to you guys about it later. I don't even know why I brought that up. I don't necessarily fault them for wanting to go back because even on the other side of Jordan, it was still the promised land when you look at what God actually gave Adam and Eve back in Genesis. But that's neither here nor there. But, man, you know what? Where they were living... On the other side of Jordan, it was close to the enemies of God. And when it was close to the enemies of God, we see here what happened to them. Look at verse 23. And the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. They increased from Bashan unto Baal, Hermon. That's not a good name. And it talks about their fathers. Look towards the end of verse 24. All of their fathers, these heads of the families, they were mighty men of Valor, famous men and heads of the house of their fathers. But look what these mighty men of valor did because certain of them weren't doing it out of the right heart attitude or based upon their circumstances. Because in verse 25, they transgressed against the God of their fathers and went a whoring after the gods of the people of the land whom God destroyed before them. And you know what you see in verse 26? It wasn't Ephraim, it was Gad. The Gadites, sorry. You know what you see in verse 26? When the half-tribe of Manasseh decided to sin and disobey, they took others down with them. Their sin affected two other tribes. We have to watch the things we get ourselves into because it might just affect the person next to you. 
And lastly, turn over to 1 Samuel 30. This is the parallel passage to what we just read about the ones who helped David out in his time of need against the band of rovers. What happened there? So they go off to battle, and this will be the last passage. They go off to battle to go get back what was stolen from them, what was robbed from them. But as all of these men are going, 200 of them decided, man, you know what? I'm weak. I'm not strong. I'm not virtuous. I am not a man of valor. We can't go forward, David. And David says, all right, just stay back here by the stuff. So they go back, they get back their, their flocks, they get back everything that was stolen from them, their wives, their kids. And in verse 21, David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Bezor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with them. And when David came near the people, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men of Belial, the ones who were with him in battle, who actually got the job done. We just saw in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 that they were called mighty men of what? Valor. They were virtuous. They did the right thing. But because it was convenient, because they had to, or for their reputation's sake, because as we just see here, they're equated to the enemies of God. Because they didn't do it out of a pure heart motive. Here's what they said. Of those that went with David and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered. Save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. In other words, hey, those guys were in the fight, David. Why are you giving them anything? They were too weak. If we're not careful, we can talk about each other like that. And David said, Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us. Don't discount anybody that walks through these doors. Who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us from our land. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall be, they shall part alike. Not everyone's going to be a great evangelist. Not everyone's going to be a great discipler. But everybody can do something. Everybody can do something, even if it's just staying by the stuff, abiding with the king. Don't discount or discredit anyone who comes through here just because they're not on your level. It's an area of growth. These guys decided not to help the 200 weak, faint people who came in. They decided not to. They were mighty men of valor. They went and got the spoils back. But they were mighty men of valor because of convenience, because of compulsion. They had to. Or maybe they were seeking for brownie points from David. Reputation. We need to make sure everything we do for the Lord that our motive is pure regardless of the circumstance. Regardless of the circumstance we find ourselves in. We see a dichotomy. We see this dual nature. People who went and genuinely were strong for the Lord and added to their faith virtue and people who did good, morally good, righteous things but for an altogether different motive and based upon their circumstances. That can't be us. We'll conclude this next week. Let's pray.